Amen. If you got a Bible on your phone or in the seat back in front of you, would you grab it and turn to the middle in Isaiah, the long, lengthy book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. We're looking at a familiar passage for the season of Advent. In fact, in some churches, they assign readings for each week, and that's where we got our Romans reading that Maria read earlier, and that's where we get this picture, this image of Advent from Isaiah chapter 11. What is Advent? Well, if you were with the student group Christmas party, you may have had a trivia question asking what the word Advent means. So students, do you know what the word Advent means? What do you think, my dude? A coming. What were you going to say, Fisher? Same thing? Yeah. It's from the Latin word that means an arrival or coming. And so we, as Christians, in 2022, are an Advent people in between the first Advent, when Jesus came as a little bitty baby in Bethlehem, and we live before his second advent or return, when he will come to renew all things. We're in between. And so I was explaining this this week to someone in the coffee shop in downtown Garland. She was a Christian. Christians tend to love coffee shops, and they put their Bibles out there, and she was studying something, and I asked her what she was studying, and one thing leads to another, and she started to ask about Advent. And so I told her something like this. Why Advent? Maybe this will help. What Advent does is trains us to look toward the light that's beyond our present darkness without ignoring it. The thing that you'll see in places like Isaiah 11 or last week in Isaiah 2 or next week in the next in Isaiah 7 or 35 is that it looked bleak in the present tense. But in steps Isaiah who sees a world reimagined and reorganized where the people that are left out, lonely, spat upon, sat upon get elevated when the rightful king comes. And so he's saying, you can almost see the sunlight breaking over the horizon at dawn. So live today in light of that tomorrow. He's not excusing or ignoring the brokenness and darkness at the doorstep. He's just saying, this doesn't get the last word. So in other words... Advent invites us to wait for God's king and believe in God's good end despite all that evidence to the contrary. You say, Adam, it is dark. Look at this. And I said, yeah, that's some pretty serious evidence. Look at exhibit A and B and C. Some of you just barely made it here this week. But Advent is a season that reminds us that we are awaiting people. But because we live in between that first advent, we believe what we sing, that he is with us and that he is reigning and that one day he will come and finish what he started and that all will be made new and we will be rescued and restored. Now imagine hearing that kind of message 
700 years before Jesus is ever born in a manger. And then talk about waiting. Now imagine hearing a message about a promised king from a line of kings whose last good one was about 250 years before. Y'all heard of David? As in David and Goliath? That man was about as ancient history to Isaiah's contemporaries as George Washington is to us. So you want to talk about waiting? You want to talk about light on the horizon? People hear the words we're about to read, and they see Assyria knocking on their doorstep to take their land and knock down their homes and their temples. And he's talking about how somebody from David's family, David? As in 250 years ago, David and Goliath? Now imagine that that king doesn't really step on the scene for another 700 years. Then we start to get into the season of Advent, of waiting. Let's listen to Isaiah tell us. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, here's another Advent trivia. What's the name of David's dad? Let me tell you in verse 1. A shoot, a sprout, will come up from the stump of who? Jesse. From his roots, a branch will go up, is what it really says. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. If you're reading the literal Hebrew, of which I cannot, but I'm told that this phrase almost means it's like he is just breathing in the way and rightness of the Lord. He delights in it. He breathes it. Verse 4, or let's continue verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He's not looking at the outward appearances or your clothes to decide who should get the right verdict. He won't decide by what he hears with his ears. You can't tempt him or bribe him. But, ver but verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the needy. Does that phrase strike you? Because judging is so often a negative context for us, right? What do you think it means that he will judge the needy? It means this, with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. To judge the needy is to not listen to the bribes or, or to see the appearance of the rich, to tilt the scales of justice, but he'll see the poor, he'll see the needy, he will judge them and bring back into balance those who've been sat upon and spat upon. We continue. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This strong king with the spirit of the Lord will speak the truth in a way that just can't be ignored even from the wicked. Verse 5. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist because this one is ready to go to work. 
than this picture. Ready? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much does the water cover the sea? A lot. How wet is water? Very. He's reimagining and reorganizing a world in which it's safe for the most vulnerable to come out to play. Finally, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will then rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. We moved into our house just up the road uh, a little over a year ago. And we inherited two dead trees in our front yard. We moved in at the end of the summer and we thought, oh, maybe it's just because, you know, it's hot and a drought. But then we were really just fooling ourselves because every time I looked out the window, it looked like a Tim Burton movie set. Just gnarled and mangled and like creepy. But then it started to have these strange little um, growths, and it kind of tricked me. And I thought, oh, maybe it's not dead. Maybe they didn't know what they were talking about. But then I started to ask my neighbor, and then that neighbor, and then the guys that would come down and give me the tree service business cards and say, wait, 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 is this tree dead? They would say, yes. Don't be fooled by this stuff. It may look big and glorious, but it's really almost like a weed has just crept in and taken residence. But that sucker is dead. Both suckers are dead. I don't know if it was the freeze. I don't know if it's our, I'm going to blame my previous owners because I, I, I probably did everything right. But this was dead. And so finally, what I started to do was collect these business cards, and I would ask for estimates, ask for estimates, ask for estimates, and finally, I got one I liked, and I said, today's the day. These guys got to go, and it grieved me, but it had to go, and so they sawed them both down, and then they ground down the stump, and that was all she wrote until this past spring, and you know what happened this past spring? I began to see something like that image right there, and I thought, huh crazy. Well, got to mow, and I'd yank it out, and I'd toss it, and then I'd mow. And then a week would go by, and then I'd see one, two, or three. And then I'd say, huh, crazy. And then I'd yank them out, and then I'd toss them, and then I'd mow. And it got super hot, and then I just didn't mow. So then what happened was like weeks would go by, months would go by, and all of a sudden, you probably saw it, and you also probably heard me say, you can come over, just don't judge my yard. Because I had this forest of this shoot, this sprout, that was really starting to gain some traction and grow. And so I'm thinking about that sprout in that yard 
that somehow gets at Isaiah chapter 11 and the image that Isaiah is bringing to us from something that had all the lookings and markings of a vibrant tree, but what the prophets had said for centuries was, don't be fooled, it's rotten at the core. And so he says, I trust that God will send a king from David's line like we talked about in 2 Samuel 7. I trust God. I just don't trust the Game of Thrones looking succession of people. I've never seen it, but I hear it's wild. And I probably, am I off base on this? Read First and Second Kings and you'll see all this pomp and circumstance and wealth and riches. You'll see Solomon with thousands of, uh, thousands of wives and he's building a temple. But even by the end of Solomon, David's son's reign, He's starting to capitulate to the other gods. He's starting to forget the core of what it means to be a king of Israel. And part of what it meant to be king of Israel was, would you believe, to put God first in everything and care for the neglected neighbors. And by Isaiah's time, He is giving us an image at the end of chapter 10 that says, guess what? This stump of the kingly line of David, we're a far cry from David 250 years ago. We got a bunch of dead, lifeless stumps, but I see a sprout. And the Israelites say, I don't see anything. And he says, you got to look a little further. But I see a stump that the Spirit of the Lord will breathe upon, will rest upon, and this one will be anointed. And if you can join me, you'll see a sign of life. Our big idea for this evening, for Isaiah then and for us tonight, would you dare to believe with him that in every stump there is a sprout of God's newness breaking through? So our job is to find it, foster it, and follow it toward flourishing. Or the Hebrew word shalom, which in English is peace. Do you believe that in every stump of a broken relationship, in every stump of a failed opportunity, in every stump of a dream that you had to let go of, that there's something in Christ that can sprout up and signal new life. They had had 250 years and all they saw was a stump. And Isaiah says, no, no, no. I need you to imagine with me. I need you to reimagine what's happening Because Isaiah is a prophet. And here's what a prophet does. A prophet is someone with a God-inspired imagination to see the world according to God's desire and to speak this reality to God's people. You see, all the people knew were kings that had all this pomp and circumstance, but there was no real life there. And Isaiah says, no, 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 find it 
in this sprout who's anointed with the Spirit of God, which is the Hebrew way of saying God has set a seal on them. He's been chosen like David or Saul or Solomon, and he's been empowered to do what I'm telling you he can do, to judge rightly and forget the bribes. And they say, wait, 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 but all the rich in our land have bought up all our land, and we're sitting here renting that land and we're in debt, farming it, because we're still paying them a cut of it. We're sitting here working rented land. And they say, wait a minute. In Moses' law, we were supposed to have the year of Jubilee. And every seven years, we're supposed to have debts forgiven. And we're still crippled under student loan debt. Sorry, under the debt of this farming and Moses says in the year of Jubilee that this land is supposed to be given back to the people because Moses imagined a, a world in which things were equal and fair and we could live at peace. But all I feel is a life behind the eight ball. And I think these stumps have something to do with it. And he says, I want you to come around and imagine with me in the midst of this bleakness, can you find a sign of life? Can you find what God is doing? Because they may not follow the year of Jubilee, but you can love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. So our job is to find the sprouts even in the midst of the stump. And Advent says, don't ignore the fact that we're buried in debt and we're scraping to make ends meet, but what's the next right step that we can find and foster today? Isaiah 43 says this beautiful thing about a shoot or a stump. He says, do you not perceive the new thing I'm doing? Behold, it's springing up in front of it. Miguel loves an old rabbinical tale. It's just a thought. It's not like a theology, it's not in scripture, but it's an old-fashioned rabbinical thought. And the thought goes that the burning bush, you know the one that Moses happened upon? And then he takes off his shoes because it's holy ground. The rabbis love to stay up late at night sipping wine and saying things like, yeah, that bush... That bush was always burning. Moses just happened to look that day. And I just wonder, how many times are we just walking past our life, barely making it through our day, and God has burning bushes and sprouts and shoots and the shoot with the capital S, Jesus himself, standing here saying, come, come to me, Come follow me, and we just have our head down because it's too bleak, it's too dark, the stump is too dead, and we're missing what God is doing in our midst. And that's why it takes a prophet or a voice from the bush to wake us up, and Advent trains us. Advent shows us, you've got to look. I know it's dark, but you've got to look. We've got to find it, foster it, and then follow it towards flourishing, but we don't like to wait, and I don't blame you. Waiting is a part of life. Some of y'all been waiting in the urgent care because flu's going around, but like it or not, the Bible shows us 
that waiting ain't just part of MedPost or Baylor. It's part of our life with God. Do you believe this? How many of you have read a psalm? Hello? Wait on the Lord. But isn't it also beautifully biblical to say, enough, come on, dude. That was Psalm 151. Yours Bible has 150. But my Bible says, thus I said, come on, dude, waiting is hard. (laughs) But growth takes time, doesn't it? Restoration takes time, doesn't it? Broken bones take time. Renewing habits and repairing relationships takes time. Yet, we want to say, God, just download mercy. Download compassion. I want to be Adam version 4.0, not barking at my kids in the middle of worship because I'm flustered and frustrated by their actions. Download patience for me, please. But the real stuff of life isn't eligible for prime same-day delivery, is it? I love the imagery of following Jesus. Students, when we talk about following Jesus, we don't really talk at all about asking Jesus into your heart. Have you heard me say that ever? Because Jesus doesn't say that and the Bible doesn't say that. It's a helpful image. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I think... I like Jesus' language, which is come to me and then follow me. And the thing about Jesus is he's always on the move. And the thing about Jesus with his disciples is he spent three years with them. And one still shows up to the Last Supper and bails on him and sends him to the police. Because growth takes time. That's why we need to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. And I hope that I'm more gracious today than I was a year ago, but it's going to be incremental and take time. Amen? I just think some of you need to hear, as you're doing an Advent devotional and you already didn't read day three, that's okay. It's one step at a time. And Jesus invites you to just come and take another step, devotional or otherwise. He just wants your attention today. But the Advent season, an Advent-shaped waiting, beckons us to anticipate peace in an anxiety-ridden world that tempts us to anticipate disaster. Do you believe this? Man, I doom-scroll Twitter like crazy, and I anticipate the unraveling. I anticipate disaster. And yet, the cycle of the Christian calendar, of which we flirt with, but we got to do Advent because Advent is a countercultural invitation to pay attention, to sit with it, and to dare to believe that He will return and make all things new. And by the way, when I say return, well, we'll talk about this more another time. I don't mean a rapture. I mean what Christians have said categorically across all different denominations, that Jesus will return one time, 
He'll judge the world, set it right, and the new heavens and new earth will become one, and we will live with him forever, and even death will be defeated. He'll come and finish what he started. And we are to look ahead to that day, be it seven minutes or 700 years. And Advent is the four weeks of the Christian year that begs us, beckons us to sit in it. Because otherwise, we just want the same day delivery. We want to be patient today. We want to be fixed today. And the whole record, Isaiah on, is one that says, wait and live today in light of the last day. Yes, it's hard. And yes, you see injustice. So don't just find new life. Try to foster it. Try to sit and steep within it. Some of you are barely holding on, and I get it. Can I encourage you to sit and be steeped in peace because it's elusive? When it comes to peace, the truth is that we can't give what we don't have. And of hope, peace, joy, and love, what's the one that slips through our fingers the most, do you think? Some of you, it may be different. For me, it's peace. So maybe a practice for you, and this is why it's baked into this Advent devotional, which is a tool to take or leave, But you'll notice that for 25 days, the first invitation is to pause, to be still, to recenter your scattered senses on the presence of God, who's a burning bush and an image from Isaiah, a shoot springing up in your everyday life saying, hey, look, hey, look, you're still here and I'm not done. So maybe these words help you to be and breathe. There's a way of praying where we say you sit with Jesus. Maybe you take your phone timer, you swipe down for five minutes and just give five minutes of breathing and stillness and maybe the word you say is peace. And that helps you re-center your scattered senses. Every time you start to drift down, or as Pastor Bud used to say, every time he takes Jesus to Kroger, because he starts going through his grocery store list, i got to go get that that, uh, milk later. Oh, okay. Peace. Bring me back to peace. To breathe, to be, practice with five minutes, and see if you don't move forward with a posture of peace for the next five or 10 or 15. You're being present to God's presence. And I'll be honest with you, we're on day three of the devotional. I keep talking about the devotional. Guess which part I fly by the fastest. It's easier to read the Bible than it is to sit in stillness. It's easy to read the little reflection piece because it's only a few sentences than it is to sit and be present to God's presence. But he's there longing to be gracious to you and that's how we might foster it. Let's get back to what Isaiah saw briefly. What Isaiah saw was a king that will do what David's family has failed to do. And if you look at the text, you'll see in verses 1 
to the beginning part of 3a, what we talked about when we read it. God's anointing to reign with wisdom. Let me ask you this quiz question and trivia. Here's another Bible word question. What is the New Testament word? It's in Greek for Messiah. That's the Old Testament Hebrew word. Does anybody know? Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah. And Messiah and Christ is a word that means the anointed one. So when Isaiah has an image, a lengthy image of some king is going to come out of this stump. He ain't going to be like all them other kings. He's going to have God's anointing. So you'll know that you'll know it's him. And it's even childlike in the way he's leading these things and how everything is set right. He's not oppressive like the other ones. He doesn't have all this fake stuff. He's really doing it. And we know that because the second thing we see in places like verse 3 to 5 is that his justice is going to become manifest and he's going to uphold the cause of the neglected. You know what's remarkable in the prophets? The prophets are like the color commentators of the Old Testament. The first books are the history, and then you get a little interlude with Psalms and Proverbs and the wisdom books, and then you get to the Wild West of the prophets that are the poets that are like going nuts. But there's one thing that's remarkably consistent Listen to this. Across generations and centuries, some like Isaiah worked with the kings and some were the crazy guy on the edge of the street corner, naked and shouting, come back to God. And you say, who is this guy? You see him. You see Jeremiah walking through the streets, crying with a a yoke on his back. And you say, what? But there's something remarkably consistent with a Jeremiah who's going crazy with the yoke. And there's this other crazy guy, Amos, in the back. And then you've got nice buttoned down Isaiah in the king's quarters. But there's a consistent message and it's this. You better treat the widows and orphans and poor right. I wish I could say it any other way. And that's why these prophets are so important for America today. Because you can't say you love God if you will ignore and oppress your neighbor. John will say it in 1 John 3. Don't come around here saying you love God and you're not clothing the poor and feeding them. We talked a couple weeks ago about communion. We did a whole thing. And he said, hey... You rich are over there in your private dining room getting wasted and eating the best food and you're literally leaving the freed slaves and the poor in the garden because they got home from work too late and you're giving them crumbs. He says, whatever you're doing is not the Lord's Supper because he's trying to create a new community, a new kingdom in which the poor sit at the table with the rich because for all of human history, we've seen how we say one thing with our mouths and we give a whole other thing with our policies and our pocketbooks. And he says, don't come around here saying you're a Christian if you're gonna hate your neighbor. Which is why when Jesus was asked, what's the thing that holds all 613 laws together? He says, put God first in everything and then love your neighbor as yourself. Because he knew and he lived every step toward God, you look up and realize is a step toward neighbor. 
And then John realized, and John the Baptist realized, you want to love God? Show me in your love for neighbor. How do I love God? I love my neighbor, made in God's image. I show the dignity of God's creation, and I'm an extension of God's love and justice. And the prophets, throughout all the centuries, through all their different characteristics, one thread that is constant is come back to God and show it by caring for the vulnerable. And so any nation that wants to presume that they're a Christian nation, at the end of the age, when Christ comes back, the righteous and anointed king, he'll say, cool, how did you clothe the naked? Oh, but man, we had, we had the best programs and budgets and Christmas pageants. Great. How did you feed the hungry? Because this sprout and this peace is not just something we look at and say, that's really beautiful and that's nice. Look at that candle. He says, great, go and do likewise with me. Go and show this. Be a visible witness to the kingdom that has come and is coming in fullness. And it is so clear when they talk about the Messiah that he is going to bring the world to rights and bring balance where there is brokenness. And the degree to which we participate in that is the degree to which we are living what we're praying, let your kingdom come more and more on earth as it is in heaven. And do we do this perfectly? Shake your head, no way. And so that's why Isaiah has been eating my lunch all week. And that's why I want the neighborhood church to be a church that stays close to the poor and left out and lonely and forgotten. Not because we want to earn God's favor, listen, but because we want to be an extension and expression of God's love and justice in the world. Amen? So the degree to which we sit with Jesus and learn from Jesus to live like Jesus, we start to look around and say, oh, I'm forgiving my enemies. Oh, I'm blessing the ones who cussed me out this week. Oh, I'm turning the other cheek. Oh, I'm giving away my stuff. Because we, like this king, want to see the picture, like in verses 6 to 9, where the world is a safe place for lambs, and the homeless. That's a world reimagined. Isaiah sees this. That's the what. Now I want to ground home with the who. Isaiah doesn't know his name, but we might know. Because a prince of peace will come, and the Prince of Peace, that language was for Caesar, who was another oppressive king that knocked on the doorsteps of other nations and said, here's some good news, good tidings of peace. The Son of God and Prince of Peace has come. And you can get in with the Prince of Peace so long as you give taxes and let us dominate over you. And somewhere in that Roman world, there's a child that's born. And the angels say, no, 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 this is the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings. And what's remarkable about that baby in a manger is that these wise men will see him because they've been Advent paying attention. And he's going to draw these outsiders and foreigners from a long place, and they're going to behold him. 
And the good news was announced to the rough and rowdy shepherds that slept outside that were stinky and nobody wanted to be with them. But this child, like a banner on a hill or in a manger, is starting from day one to draw people to himself. And then when the time has come, this teacher shows up in his local synagogue and he announces that these words in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 40, yeah, the words that said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind, that's me. And they said, this guy sitting in this synagogue right here, you're the sprout, you're the root, you're the shoot. And just so he knew that they didn't just hear it, that they saw it, later on in Luke 19, he doesn't look at appearances of this wee little man in a sycamore tree, right? He doesn't just look at him or write him off even when the crowd starts whispering, yo, that dude is a sinner. He doesn't care what they say. He don't care what he looks like. He says, I'm going to your house tonight. And so they're having a party and somewhere in the presence of the Prince of Peace, this wolf that had stolen from every one of those dinner guests, that had stolen from the widows, that had stolen from the vulnerable poor, they couldn't afford their medical bills, but they had to pay his taxes. Otherwise, he'd report them. That wolf that was devouring their lives all of a sudden stands up and says, I'm giving half my money away. More than that, I'm gonna give everything back I stolen and then some. Something about that wolf got transformed in the presence of the just and righteous king. And all of a sudden, now the wolf is eating with the lambs. And we live in a world in which the wolves don't even see the lambs and the leopards don't even see the goats. And the kingdom of God is the place in which we all have enough and we eat together. It looks like a few weeks ago in that building up on Walnut, we're eating food together and a person that slept outside the night before and was gonna sleep outside that night looks me and a gaggle of other neighborhood church folks and says, this feels like family. And he came to the clothes closet the next day. It's still dark, it's still broken, he's not here. God bless him where he is. I hope we'll see him again. We've tried to connect with him again. But you know what, for that moment, the wolf was lying down with the lamb. And it was a safe place for the neglected, even for a moment. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we're waiting to see more of. And then what's remarkable is after the wolves of the world crucify him, he's risen and he stops a lion dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus and a word of his mouth says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it stops him dead in his tracks. The rod out of his mouth stops him dead in his tracks. And this lion that was in Acts 9 ravaging the church becomes the one to plant new shoots and sprouts of the root of Jesse all across the known world. That's what happens when you spend time with the Prince of Peace. Amen? So the question for us is, what's our story? How has he transformed our life? 
What is he doing in your midst that you missed last week, that I missed last week? What is it that I need to say, God, give me eyes to see the spring of new life in our children, in our community, in our neighbors? I want to find it. I want to foster it. And Lord, when I see you walking around as the Prince of Peace let loose on a dark world, I want to follow where you're going and practice what you preached. What has he done and what will we do? How can we go and do likewise? Because we can't give what we don't have. So we ask, O Lord, that in your grace and compassion, You would call us back to yourself and draw us deeper into love of you and send us further out into love of our neighbor. For the same spirit that anointed this king is filling and forming and uniting us. So may we be present to the spirit of God even now and follow you into the places to which you are sending us. As agents of an advent, that until the day you return and make all things new, we would do what we can in the small spaces to tend to the shoot of new life in our midst. We ask for your goodness and grace in all these things in the name of Jesus our King. Amen and amen. Tonight's benediction was written by former TNC member Robin Craddock. May the words of Jesus in John 14, 27 plant themselves in your heart tonight. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Take the gift of peace you have been offered here tonight back into the world with you this week. Do not be people who walk in darkness. Instead, walk as people who have seen a great light. Let your faith be renewed during this Advent season, and may you be inspired to act. Be the peacemakers that your neighbors are longing for. Be the peacemakers your coworkers are searching for. Be the peacemakers the world so desperately needs. And by being peacemakers, may you in turn find the peace you are longing for. Go in peace, make peace, and be at peace.